What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. Another world. Another time. In the age of wonder. There was once a dream. You could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper, and it would vanish. A battle between good and evil. You don't know the power of the dark side. Where shall I find a new adversary so close to my own level? Try the local sewer. You know of the rebellion against the Empire? The Avengers, Earth's mightiest heroes. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. One of these days, I'm going to have a stick of my own. I'm Groot. Welcome to the Neverland Podcast. The podcast for lovers of Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Star Wars. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. Please welcome your host, Jeremy. I thought he'd be taller. Yeah, I can find All it takes is faith. Trust. Well, if it isn't the Star Spangled Man with a plan, what is your plan today? Up to Neverland! Take your pixie out of your pocket, Neverlanders. Sprinkle some of that pixie dust around. Think up that happiest thought. And fly away with me, your head lost boy Jeremy, to Neverland again. And if you don't want to just refer to me as Head Lost Boy Jeremy, you can call me The Spider Pan, because all Lost Boys have a nickname. All Pixies... <laughs> I can't even say Pixie today. All Pixies also have a nickname. We don't have any Lost Girls, because girls are too clever. They don't get lost. But we do have Pixies. And if you would like to register your official Lost Boy or Pixie name, please visit our website, NeverlandPodcast.com. Look on the Neverlanders page, and you can register yourself as a Lost Boy or Pixie right there. You can also find out how you can link over to our Patreon page so you can help support the show, as I do appreciate it. And I even have a new supporter, Jeff Bam, who helped me out. Uh, I've, I've got a Facebook campaign going on right now to kind of get some of the early, uh, the yearly expenses that I know are going to occur. Uh, Jeff Bam, you might know him from uh, Mousetalgia. Uh, also, he uh, he's known as Chef Mayhem of the Doom Buggies uh, website, and of course the Doom Buggies podcast. Very fun, very fun stuff. Appreciate his help uh, in keeping the magic going. And you can of course join in on that. We we of course have uh, a Facebook page for you to like, also a Facebook group that you can join. I'm trying to make sure they're a bit more interactive. I need to do more, but you know, if I had the time to do as many things on Facebook and on our Twitter feeds as I am at uh, my job where I, where I work at a radio station if you search for regional radio on facebook and you see a little bulldog symbol uh that's us and i basically spend a lot of my time doing things there you know adding having a question of the day sharing news stories because we we have news stuff all the time if i had the kind of time to do that for the neverland and be able to put that many news stories up uh I, it would be fantastic because uh, there's so much stuff. You know, I've been posting memes, videos, and all kinds of stuff. Although, I guess we're backing off of music videos, even though we're a radio station. We seem to get more response by me finding funny memes and posting them. But I really wish I could do that for uh, the Neverland pages to keep it going more actively. But, you know, i got to work. I just don't have that kind of time. Uh, so I'm still balancing things here. 
Uh, but anyways, have a few over little things uh, to go over before we get into our main content. What we've got today is Craig Miller. Uh, I'll introduce him fully later, but my goodness, he's got a large body of work, including a lot of Star Wars work that he did with marketing and things like that. Uh, so he's got some interesting things to talk about. And uh, Eric will be joining me for that conversation. Uh, he wasn't able to join me in the uh, the first part of the show, and the funny thing is, in the conversation, you'll hear y'all have me some wondering. Hey, I wonder if Eric will be able to join us in the beginning. But uh, Eric had to work late when I got a chance to finally record this. Uh, I didn't manage to record a lot of this over the weekend because, well, uh, I live in Kansas City, and uh, I've been watching the Chiefs go through the playoffs. And wow, did anybody watch the game of the Chiefs and the Texans? And uh, yeah, the first quarter, it looked like the Chiefs had just were going to blow it. And then, boom, boom, wow, <laughs> the second quarter happened, and it just turned right around. That was an exciting game for anyone who happens to be a fan of American football. Uh, that was really fun to watch. And, you know, the Chiefs haven't been to a Super Bowl in 50 years, and so we're really hoping to get there this time. It's looking pretty good. We just got to get through the, the Tennessee Titans. And uh, the Tennessee Titans, they were the sixth seed in the playoffs, but uh, they have taken down better teams than they are supposed to be. Uh, so they are no slouch. It's going to be a pretty good game. Even if the Chiefs don't win a Super Bowl, just getting there is going to make me happy. Uh, but some things I kind of want to talk about that happened this week. Did y'all see the video? It went viral of a guy, and I don't know how much money he had to be able to put into this because he had to have some money. Uh, but... He made a, uh, you know, his his girl, childhood sweetheart, well, not childhood sweetheart, but I guess school sweetheart. I mean, he's known her, I guess, for a long time as a big fan of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. And as far as she knew, they were going to just a special screening that it was going to be shown at a theater. Well, little did she know that behind them, because they're sitting in front row, behind them is all of their friends and family. And he has somehow or another managed to reanimate the crucial scene at the end of the film where, the, uh, where Prince Philip goes to... Uh, Awaken the Aurora, uh, and he's made the two characters to look like him and her, and actually uh, did this really cute thing. So you've probably seen this video. I may have shared it. I hope I did, uh, but it's it's gone viral. You've probably seen it. But uh, the proposal happens on kind of on screen. They toss the ring up into the air, and they actually had it set up where it dropped in the theater so he could catch it. And so uh, and then the two characters on screen waited for her uh, response. Uh, to the proposal and stuff. I mean, he, that, that must have taken some money to kind of reanimate that whole thing, to do this, and my goodness. Uh, but uh, I did see, I think uh, Tammy Tucky was saying, hey guys, this sets the new standard or whatever. This, you know, y'all got to step up. I'm like, um, no. <laughs> I'm sorry, most of us don't have that kind of money to rig up that much. <laughs> so nobody get any ideas that that's what's going to happen in your proposal. I, I'm sorry. Most of us are, are broke, you know, compared to that. Not going to happen. Anyways, but uh, on Disney Plus, I had been meaning to talk a long time ago that on Disney Plus, I'd been watching, I watched Saludos Amigos and uh, The Three Caballeros. Uh, and there, there's even a third one where, um, uh, I think it was, was it Jose Carioca that shows up again? I don't know, but, uh, or... Yeah, it was one of them that showed up in yet another uh, Disney Plus or another Disney feature of some sort, um, Fun and Fancy Free or one of the other ones. I can't think of what it was I'd watched. But, um, yeah, so he popped up again. But I was going to talk about having watched those, but that's been weeks ago. But on Sunday, I did because I've been snowed in. I watched Return to Oz because I'd heard so much about it, uh, and I'd never actually sat and watched it. And so I sat and watched it, and uh, I gotta say, I kind of enjoyed it. 
Uh, I thought it was an enjoyable film. And yeah, I can see how some parts are kind of a little dark and scary, but uh, that just made it more adventurous. And maybe it was maybe it's not aimed for some younger kids, as you would expect for an Oz, but I don't know if the books were necessarily aimed for that young. I don't know, because there's some dark stuff and some satire uh, about uh, you know the, how things were in the modern time uh, when those books were written. Um, so they were really intelligent written, but I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, the, the little girl who played Dorothy grew up to be, uh, she, I cannot think of her name. It was like Farza. She was in The Craft and, um, uh, oh, the Adam Sandler movie, uh, The Waterboy and a lot of other different things that she's grown out. Uh, so, and I recognized her right away. I was like, oh, hey. And I had to look her up just to be sure. But I actually really did enjoy that movie. Uh, even, uh, the evil Mamba in there, who was the head swapping, uh, evil witch queen, uh, that was played by Gene uh, Marsh, who later would play the evil queen Bav Morda in Willow. So it's kind of fun, you know, the connections and seeing who played what. And the puppetry was very impressive. It's enough impressive where I couldn't necessarily figure out how they were bringing all these different characters to life, like TikTok and Jack Pumpkinhead. Uh, sometimes you could tell it was somebody in a suit. Sometimes you thought you were looking at a really big marionette or something. Uh, it was just amazing a feat of puppetry. So if you, ha if you have Disney Plus and you haven't ever seen that movie, uh, definitely go and check it out, just at least for the the craftsmanship of the film. But, uh, all right, so moving on, uh, we've got some Oscar nominations. I would normally have had this show out by Monday morning, but conveniently, see, the Oscars were coming out Monday, and I was watching football yesterday. So I want to list out a few Disney nods and the Oscars. Uh, of course, one of them is not necessarily a Disney film, but we did review the film. Uh, for supporting actor, Tom Hanks has been nominated for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which we gave a wonderful review to that film, and I did let y'all know that it's, uh, Mr. Rogers was a supporting character in that, and it actually was a work of fiction, with some truth put it in there. Um, so, yeah, he's a supporting actor. That might have been a surprise if you have not seen that film. You know, it's not about Mr. Rogers, but it is, but it isn't. It's, it's kind of weird, but it's a good film. Uh, best animated fi uh, feature, How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World is nominated. Not a Disney film, but uh, we did review it. Klaus, which um, I think I dozed in a little bit, but I, it was very enjoyable. That was a Netflix original. Uh, really enjoyed that. And Toy Story 4, best nominated uh, for best animated. Frozen 2, I noticed it wasn't there. At least I didn't see it. I looked. You know, I figured Frozen 2 would be a possible nomination, but it wasn't. I still have not seen that film. Uh, hair and makeup, Maleficent has a nod for that. Maleficent, of course, um, the sequel. Wow, uh, Queen of Darkness or something. Whatever, I, I didn't go see it. I'm not interested. Uh, we did, of course, uh, John Williams for Rise of Skywalker got a nod for Best Score. Uh, song, there's a couple of Disney nominations. I Can't Let You Throw Yourself Away by Randy Newman for Toy Story 4 and Into the Unknown from Frozen 2, uh, from the, you know, Lopez, the songwriters that, uh, did the, uh, first film, which, um... I have to say, I've watched some YouTube video of uh, some people doing covers, and they did a they did a cover of this, and I didn't realize it was a song from Frozen Two. And I found out afterwards, like, oh, that was the song from Frozen Two, and I wasn't that impressed with it. If this is the big song, I, I didn't didn't click for me. But maybe the way it's performed in the film is better than uh, this cover thing. But although it's pretty good production for the cover, it was really neat. Uh, animated short Kit Bull is nominated. If you haven't watched that, it is on Disney Plus. It is a uh, kind of a Part of part of Pixar, uh, where they were having some new talent showcase uh, some of their stuff in Kit Bull. Oh my goodness, it is so good. Uh, so I really hope it wins. Sound editing, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker is up for sound editing. It's also up for special effects, along with Avengers Endgame and The Lion King. Uh, the Oscars, of course, will air on television. 
February 9th, uh, just a little less than a month away. A little bit of news from Disney Parks. I'll just kind of mention R2-D2 is wandering around the Star Wars Galaxy in Walt Disney World, which is very cool. I do want to briefly mention, I've already got a pretty full show, so I don't want to dive too far. But I do want to mention that there was a trailer for Morbius, uh, which is a Sony Pictures release, which is kind of Spider-Verse, I'm going to say, but not necessarily part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Although they do, at the end of the trailer, show Michael Keaton, uh, presumably as Adrian Toomes. So I'm not sure exactly how this is working. Jared Leto is playing Michael Morbius. Uh, for those not familiar with the Marvel comic, uh, he is a living vampire. Uh, I'll probably do a bit more research, and maybe we'll get a little bit more into Morbius perhaps next week. Uh, I'll make sure I get myself researched up because you know there's the, I got more comfortable and used to the animated version on the '90s series. Uh, I don't have a lot of comics with Morbius in it. He was a villain though for Spider-Man who. Uh, Later, it will try to choose his uh, victims a little better because uh, he is a vampire, you know. Uh, but uh, that's also how I got familiar with the character Blade is when Morbius was on the 90s series, although it's, I was a little bit familiar with Morbius already from Spider-Man comics. Uh, but uh, the trailer looked interesting. I don't know how excited I am for it at this point, but it did look interesting. I have shared it on our Facebook page to go and check it out. But anyways, I would like to get the show rolling right along here, so let's jump into our conversation with Mr. Craig Miller. To Disney and beyond! Okay, my happy little Neverlanders, we're going to have another unsung hero, basically. I love it when I get to, somebody recommends a guest, and I go and start, you know, well, let me go and check out and see what they've done. I hear that they've written a book or something. And then it expands into, oh my goodness, look at all the things this person has done. So this is going to be fun, because I think we're going to learn a lot of different things and uh, preparing to have our socks kind of blown off. So <laughs> we're going to blow pixie dust all over the place. But everybody, welcome Craig Miller. This is where the chat will be going on. <laughs> <laughs> See, everybody in their cars let go of the steering wheel. They're cheering now. Believe me, it, it works that way. Oh, I'm sure. And, of course, Eric is with us, in case he hasn't been here in the introduction of the show, because I never know how it's going to go. <laughs> to Neither do I. Neither do I. <laughs> this may be the first time anybody hears from Eric, or you may have been hearing him all along. I don't know. We just got to get everything rolling. That's the way this show works. We're, we're, we're crazy that way. We want to make sure it's a surprise for everybody. Oh, yeah. And sometimes I'm the most surprised at all. But, my goodness. Okay, so just a brief... History of Craig Miller, and we'll get into a lot more of this stuff, but, I mean, he, he's listed as a writer-producer with over 300 credits. Uh, my goodness, marketing. He started out in marketing, did marketing for Star Wars. Uh, he's got a lot of crew work. He's got some writing, even some writing for DC Comics. Granted, I'm more of a Marvel guy, but still, he's written some comic books, and he wrote even some stuff for Disney, adapting some manga. I I can't seem to find anything he hasn't done except or I get I don't know if you've actually been in front of the camera at any point. Um I just for interviews and that sort of thing. <laughs> Never as an actor. You didn't get to go and pretend to be a droid while you're walking around. <laughs> no, the, like, un unfortunately, I I I was not uh in any of the shots in any of the films I've worked on. Oh goodness. But uh the the fun thing is, is you know, looking like fresh out of college, you start working for George Lucas on Star Wars at a point where right. nobody thought it was going to even make bank or even break even. 
So what was that experience? Because now you're that's where you're in marketing within. So yeah, well, you know, I um, I wa- I grew up as a comic science fiction movie nerd, um, like I think all of us, and um, I got involved early on um, with Lucasfilm uh, back in 1976 as a consultant on marketing the uh, marketing Star Wars to the science fiction and comics fandom about conventions and all that kind of stuff. And so I was involved as I say, as a consultant for the first several months from uh, early summer of 76 through the opening of the film. And after the film opened, I was hired full time and spent the next three years at uh, Lucasfilm. Wow. So I would say you had a pretty successful marketing campaign. (laughs) Yeah, it worked out pretty well. I mean, it (laughs) certainly wasn't it wasn't me designing it, right. uh, but, but yes, what, what we did worked out pretty well. <laughs> so how soon after, uh, when Star Wars was completed, did you start thinking, you know, wow, I wonder if he's got a sequel involved or were you kind of surprised like, Oh, he's got another movie. Well, there was always thought that, you know, if maybe the film is successful, there will be a sequel. Um, that was that was the hope um, that we could do more Star Wars movies, and in fact, um, Splinter in the Mind's Eye, Alan Dean mm-hmm. Foster's novel, was written with the thought that if the movie did well enough for a sequel, a low budget sequel, that was a mo- that was the story that could be adapted uh, to be that sequel. As it turned out. The movie did very well, and we didn't have to do a low-budget sequel. <laughs> and so uh, Splinter in the Mind's Eye was just a novel, a spin-off novel, um, and Empire is what resulted. Did you get a chance to screen any of the film before you started the uh, the marketing? Like, because it looks like you uh, you wrote press releases and press kits and things like that? Um, well, not not the... We didn't screen it. When I started, there wasn't ah, anything to screen. I'm sorry. I just spilled my can of soda. Uh, <laughs> there there wasn't anything to screen. It was way too early for that. I started in July of 1976. So I saw lots of photos. I saw of what had been shot. I saw storyboards. And, you know, Macquarie paintings and that kind of thing. But there was no, um, nothing really edited together that could be screened. I can't imagine how you start marketing when you have just just enough information to know, like, hey, well, this is going to be cool, but I can't explain why. But it just looks really cool. You know, it was early enough. We weren't worried about, um, you know, obviously you don't give away everything, but we weren't worried about people stealing the story or any of that kind of stuff at that point. Um, so when we, we had the story, we had the plot, we had a lot of visual material, but they were still picture type visual material. Um, and that we showed and we told the story of star Wars and, um, and that seemed to work pretty well. I mean, 
what people today don't realize is that in the 70s, science fiction was not popular. Yeah. You know, every other movie is science fiction or superheroes. <laughs> Back then, it was definitely not the case. Um, yeah, I think you had, like, uh, Planet of the Apes in 2001 as probably the prime examples of what sci-fi would have been back then. Right, and th- those were the high-end science fiction movies. Um, most science fiction movies, and in the mind of the public, science fiction movies were basically Roger Corman kind of movies at the high end. Mm-hmm. They weren't generally considered, you know, stuff adults went to see they were for kids uh, and yet they were good thinking movies i mean when you consider stuff like soylent green or logan's run mm-hmm. i mean it's very you know star trek really kind of I think should have reminded everybody how intellectual science fiction really is because it it helps us look at our society through like a weird point of view yeah it does but you know those were few and far between yeah science fiction did not have a good image. And in fact, Fox did a test market. They sent their marketing people out and they gave them a list, you know, comedy, romance, war movie, detective movie, science fiction, that kind of thing. And asked people to rate which kind of movies they wanted to see. Science fiction was always near the bottom. Oh goodness. And people had known. (laughs) Well, the thing is, most science fiction movies of the period weren't very good. Yeah. True. Um, but, at, you know, fortunately, Alan Ladd Jr., who was the head of 20th Century Fox at the time, took the chance and um, decided to make to go ahead with Star Wars, even though they got those results. <laughs> um, but, you know, so it was it was a big risk, and it was not obvious that it, there would be an audience for it. And that's part why the decision had been made to go after the the fan audience. They were, you know, they were the people who were the most likely to go see it. And even then, uh, we went to three different conventions in the summer of 1976. The uh, Westercon, the West Coast Science Fantasy Conference, San Diego Comic-Con, which was much smaller back then. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the World Science Fiction Convention, which was in Kansas City that year. Westercon was in L.A. Um, And in all three cases, people came into the room skeptical. Most people at the convention didn't come into the room to see the presentation. Hmm. Uh, They came in skeptical, going, yeah, probably going to be terrible. Uh, but let's see what they're going to show us. And pretty universally, people went out going, wow, this sounds and looks like it could be really good if they can actually pull it off. <laughs> Which not even George knew they were going to be able to pull it off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Nobody knew. And Nobody. I got to appreciate the fact that Kansas City had one of these conventions because I live in Kansas. Well, I'm just outside of Kansas City in Gladstone. I'm technically in the suburbs of Kansas City. (laughs) Right. Well, and in fact, um, in uh, 2016, uh, it was back in Kansas City, 
the Worldcon for the first time in 40 years. And uh, Charlie Lippincott, who had been the head of mm-hmm. marketing then, uh, and for the original film, brought together um, Gary Kurtz and Alan Dean Foster, Mark Pevers. I was there, um, a few other people from the original film, and we did a few special panels about what had happened 40 years ago. And how in the world did I miss this? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was um, August of 2016 downtown in the convention center. Oh, my goodness. See, I I don't think we get enough advertising for some of our conventions because the, the ones I mainly have gone to is Planet Comic Con, and then we have the Kansas City Comic Con. And I know we have uh, a horror-focused convention and then a manga convention, but I never can keep track of all of them, and I don't go with all of them. Yeah, of course. Well, no one can. Yeah. <laughs> Any of them. Oh, but if only I had known, I'd have been there. <laughs> well, 40 years from now. <laughs> sure, I'll only be, uh, you know, 82, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in my prime. Absolutely. You know, unfortunately, Gary Kurtz isn't with us anymore, but, mm-hmm. you know, who knows how, about the rest of us. <laughs> We won't get into how old everybody would be. <laughs> you might well, be so, appearing so by I, hologram. Too true. <laughs> yeah. Well, as you would go to these conventions, uh, is, is that all that you had? Just just the you know a few uh, pictures and maybe a brief description of what the film was to to try and drum up interest. That was that was mostly it at the beginning. I mean at the. Um, at the WesterCon, it was uh, just a slide presentation telling the story and talking about making the movie and showing the McQuarrie paintings and the John- Joe Johnston's drawings and um, what photo material existed from the shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, San Diego, um, Roy Thomas and Howard Chaikin joined the mm. presentation um, Roy and Howard were big names in the comics industry and they were doing the comic. So they were a good draw to get people into the, uh, room. Right. And in, uh, Kansas city 40 years ago, uh, or I guess 43 years ago now, yeah. um, we had a, a, a separate function room with lots of photos McQuarrie paintings, uh, some of the costumes, R2 and 3PO, uh, Darth Vader, and some of the props on display throughout the convention. Oh, wow. And, um, and Mark was there. No one knew who Mark was. He was just <laughs> this guy who, was, who would tell people he was in the movie, which, of course, he was. <laughs> but, you know, he wasn't famous then, but he was in he would hang around the room and talk to people about the movie. And then there was the presentation included, uh, both, uh, Charlie Lippincott, Mark Hamill and Gary Kurtz talking about the movie and, uh, answering questions. Wow. My goodness. So this I was the even the star would have some photos still somewhere in their archives of this. Yeah, they're there. Um, well, the, the panel presentation, is actually was actually videotaped, lo those many years ago. Who knew there was videotape? Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> and you can find that entire panel on YouTube. Oh, amazing. Um, there are almost no photos of the exhibit. Um, I have a few that are in my book. Um, and I have a, uh, one of the uh, panel as well. Um, but uh, we had signs up saying no photos and very few photos were taken. <laughs> who would have thought? Well, you know, spoilers of everything back then. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, funnily enough, three years later, um, in 1979, we repeated it uh, for Empire Strikes Back. The World Science Fiction Convention that year was in Brighton, England. Wow. And we brought down a full size snow speeder, which we set up in a corridor of the convention center outside oh, the uh, exhibit hall, you know, where the dealer's room is, saying, go up to this room to see the Empire Strikes Back exhibit. And we had an exhibit of Macquarie paintings and costumes and photos and um, miniature versions of the major sets, um, which are things that... Uh, Back when you didn't have computers to do all this, you would build actual miniatures of elaborate sets so you knew what they'd look like, where to put cameras, that kind of thing. And so we had Dagobah and the Cloud City, and um, I don't think we had the Ice Cave. I, I remember those two. But anyway, we had all that set up. And then uh, during the convention, Gary Kurtz and I did the presentation. Wow. Are any of these models still uh, in storage somewhere, archived or anything? I, my guess would be no. Oh, um, man. No, these, this was all in England, and, um, you know, they, uh, most of that stuff would not have been stored. The sets got built, the film got shot. Um, I, don't, I doubt anyone kept those miniatures. Oh, man. That'd be like perfect museum material right there if they get this George Lucas Museum built. <laughs> like, look, here's some of the stuff from promotional promotional like, designs. So said no photos. Oh um, man. And surprisingly no one took any photos. I while there are three or four photos from our nineteen seventy six exhibit, I have never found a photo of the nineteen seventy nine exhibit. And mm -hmm. I've been looking for years trying to find them. Yeah, but security was a lot tighter come Empire because now they knew it was this big deal. So there was probably a lot more people wanting to get in to see it. And so you have to tighten security up to make sure you don't get the photos taken. So, well, yeah. you know, it's true. We we did ask people to take no photos, but it wasn't like we followed them around this. I think it was a three-room small set of three rooms with the exhibits and stuff. And I haven't, I even haven't found photos of the snow speeder, which was set up in a corridor with no guard. Wow. I mean, every, everybody might've actually uh, followed the rules. <laughs> yeah, <apparently> so. <laughs> which is weird. Yes. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> Uh, I definitely got to ask though when you started uh, doing some producing work and you got to got to produce some Sesame Street episodes where R two D two and C three PO showed up. Uh, I remember that at least one time, but did that happen more than once? Well, um, it depends on how you look at it. Um, we went to 
we came to New York. I mean, we're we were based out of L.A. and we brought Tony Daniels in from London uh, to do these. And we were there on one occasion at which at during which we shot um, five segments. And so we were there once shooting but they appeared in four different episodes. Two of the <laughs> segments, two of the segments were linked, and so um, they appeared in the same episode. And the other three were just uh, wild, so they could be dropped into any episode that had an appropriately shaped hole. Because <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought I had seen them when I was little. I had seen them like more than once show up on Sesame Street, and it, it just. It, to me, it took over Sesame Street. After I'd seen the original film, when R2-D2 and C-3PO showed up, I was like all about, you know, of course I loved Sesame Street as a child anyway, but when they were on there, I mean, it was super special to me. I was like going, I was an early version of geeking out. <laughs> yeah, no, it, they were great fun to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they were very popular, and obviously they still are. And again, just like pretty much everything else, you can find them on, uh, you can find at least some of them, maybe even all of them on uh, YouTube. Yeah, see, I'm going to get done with this here, and then I'm going to end up ravaging YouTube <laughs> looking for all this now. <laughs> so did you get to work at all on their appearance on The Muppet Show? No, I wasn't involved with The Muppet Show. I just, uh, I did a bunch of commercials. I did some award shows like the Saturn Awards. Um, and Sesame Street was the biggest of those projects while I was there. But it does look like you got to work with Jim Henson again, though. Uh, you started your own company, it looks like, uh, called Con Artists. Yeah, I was, uh, after I left Lucasfilm, I was, uh, I became an independent consultant on marketing films. And actually, I was, what happened, um, in that case, what happened was, uh, Gary Kurtz was producing The Dark Crystal with Jim Henson. Mm-hmm. And Gary asked me to come work on um, Dark Crystal. And that's how I got to know Jim. And Jim asked me to continue uh, out with him on um, Muppets Take Manhattan. So I ended up spending about three years working with Jim on those two films. Oh, wow. So how would you go about with like the dark crystal? It's one of those movies that it's like story wise, you could almost consider it a kid's movie, but it's also very dark. It could be a little scary to kids. And in fact, I remember many people as kids, they say they saw it and it terrified them, but they get really excited about it later. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, how would you, how did you market that? Well, dark crystal was an interesting challenge. Um, we marketed it as a fantasy adventure for all ages, um, which is, what it really was Um, universal, which was the studio that released it had actually picked it up from Lou grades company when they shut down operations. Lou grade was um, an amazing producer in England who was the only one wise enough to produce the Muppet show. Originally Mm -hmm. no one in the United States wanted to do it. Um, and so he was the producer of the Muppet Show, and um, he produced his company produced the Dark Crystal. When his company went out of business, Universal 
picked up a slate of, I think, seven or eight movies that they had in production. Wow. And Universal was not really interested in The Dark Crystal. They were, not, they were also not interested um, in any of the other fantasy films uh, that were part of the slate. The movie they really wanted and thought was going to be their big uh, success was The Lone Ranger. Mm. <laughs> which um of course did not do very well yeah <laughs> i've so tried to watch that one a few times it's just not very good yeah and we're not talking about the the recent one we're talking oh, this no. is from the early 80s oh yes but, we had a storybook uh, of that movie when i was a kid my family had it on the uh, old rca ced video disc so uh <laughs> wow but you know so they did they did not really get behind the marketing of the film so we had to come up with lots of different ways to get noticed um we did things like we um we marketed it to you know science fiction comic book conventions and through bookstores and that kind of thing there was an art book and a story book and whatever licensing we could do with it um, we arranged for museum exhibits, both in L.A. and New York. Here in L.A., it was at the Craft and Folk Art Museum. And in New York, it was at the museum um, at Lincoln Center. And we did big exhibits and um, uh, dioramas, full-size dioramas with the puppets and the backgrounds and that sort of thing in New York. And in L.A., being the Craft and Folk Art Museum, it was really detailed exhibits of the the artwork and the basically the props like the Skeksis silverware and the fabric mm. and that kind of thing. Wow! And we arranged with uh, a couturier fashion designer to do a line of women's clothing inspired by the world of the Dark Crystal. Oh wow! And then in different department stores, very high-end department stores, um, Nordstrom's in Seattle, Bullock's Wilshire in L.A., um, Neiman Marcus in Dallas, uh, I think Ben Dell's in New York, that sort of thing. And internationally, we got uh, in those department stores, we got windows of the department stores uh, uh, with the couturier um, fashions on display. And we were in Paris Match and, and uh, in the international editions of Vogue and that kind of thing. We'd brought in a uh, fashion publicist. So we were doing all kinds of things to bring attention to the movie so that people would be familiar with it and hopefully go see it. The movie did okay theatrically. It wasn't a disaster, but it wasn't a big hit. Mm-hmm. But okay. Time, it's become hugely popular. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, home video, CDs, and all that, uh, not CDs, DVDs, um, have really made The Dark Crystal a, an iconic film for a lot of people. Yep, and I'm, I'm glad for that marketing campaign is spreading out so far, because I remember when I saw the trailer, it terrified me, and I was not planning to see it, 
But then I remember in the first grade, some people had uh, the little read-along books, you know, where you'd have the little record. And I, you know, they were flipping through the books. And I'm like, wait a minute. If first graders are sitting here with books of this, then it can't be that bad. So I remember then when it, it came on HBO, I was all excited. It was premiering on a Saturday morning. And I was like, well, I'm going to sit and watch this thing. And yeah, well, it's scary there at first, but I, that's I think what drew me into the story is that the the skeptics were so scary, and then you have the Gelfling, who is the most human looking that you you instantly get related to him. So I'm glad at least that that bit of marketing of having those book licensing is just at the right level for me to see it and realize, hey, you know what, this is going to be fine. Go check it out and watch it. Yep, yep. And I so, can't even count oh, how many times I've seen it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's really, I mean. I think I think it's a delightful film. It's mm-hmm. it's um, incredibly imaginative. It's you know full of everything you you know if you're a fantasy fan to love. Um, I'm just sorry it didn't do better when it was first released theatrically. Yeah, it certainly has made up for it, and I think uh, that Netflix series went over pretty well because that was a pretty good show too. That's been very popular. It was really good, and I understand they've been picked up for another season. Okay. Oh, good, good. <laughs> You know, I've always heard that um, with, you know, with the Dark Crystal that Jim Im- initially envisioned it as, you know, not even using English to, you know, bring the story, that the story would be told visually uh, through the actions and how everything, you know, takes place in there. So, you know, at what point uh, were you involved with uh, the decision to to make it an English film to? Um, well, I, I, that- I when we when we shot it. Um, only Jen and Kira spoke English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Agra may have spoken English as well, but those were the only characters. Every character in the movie spoke a different language. Mm. And I, and I, and I know I had a conversation with Jim saying, I didn't think it would work that audiences would have a hard time with it. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who did. But after the film was completed, we did a uh, demographic screening. Um, that's a, that's a, a screening where you invite, you know, basically someone from every category. So we mm-hmm. had a full of young people, old people, um, married couples, teenagers, you know, every demographic, um, and screen the movie for them. And going into it, Jim's attitude was, no, it'll be fine. People will understand what's going on from context. And, you know, and I said to him that, you know, your script was in English. It was easy to understand. The audience, we don't have subtitles. They're just going to have to follow it. And I'm not sure they're going to be able to. And the results mm. we got at screening bore that out. Um, mm. The audiences, you know, the whole audience, everyone got a card to fill out. And then there were focus groups, half a dozen focus groups of like um, five to eight people each. And people were just completely lost. They could not under, they really didn't understand what was going on. So that convinced Jim that people weren't getting it. Um, and so they went back in and redubbed everyone, but the pod people, the pod people, you know, I, I, I used to call them 
they're basically, you know, and then Jen and Kira find the gypsy encampment. You know, they're happy <laughs> because even though they don't speak English, we know exactly what's going on. Even though they're they're speaking what is effectively gibberish mm-hmm. to to you know a contemporary audience, it's oh you're home great come eat celebrate we're so glad you're here have more food now let's dance everyone's happy you know there was no need for conversation there, but a lot of the other stuff that went on in the movie was not so generic. You mm-hmm. needed. To what Agra was saying. You needed to understand what the Skeksis were trying to do. Um, and so those those voices all got dubbed into English. I'm very film. thankful for it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it works much better where you when you can um because as wonderful as those puppets are, they still have limited amounts of expressiveness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't get you know, when you talk to a person, uh, a living person, you see their eyes, you see their cheeks, you see how they smile or frown. You get a lot of understanding from that. And the puppets are not that expressive. At least they weren't at that time. Yeah. So you really needed more more in the language. <laughs> yeah. And I have seen a version of the film uh, where, you know, the original version that's, I don't remember if it just got released online or was with a release. And if I wasn't so familiar with the film, I think I would have been entirely lost. But it is it is neat to experience it just once to kind of see the original vision that Jim had. But yeah, without the English, it's it's a confusing mess. Yeah. You know, it's like there's a version of Galaxy Quest on the DVD. Oh, yes. Early in Fermian, which is <laughs> amusing for the first, you know, three minutes of watching everyone speak Thermian, right. the made up language of aliens. But wow. really, you're not going to get the plot of the movie or understand it. Yeah. <laughs> I have watched that. <laughs> trying to think if I have a DVD of Galaxy Quest because I don't think I've ever seen that. Now I'm curious. Oh my goodness. Uh, you've got a lot of credits though uh, for being on Cruise as well as, as for speaking of being in Disney. Return to Oz. Looks like you are a marketing consultant uncredited on that one. Well I'm my that yeah today if you watch movie credits you see you know um Everyone who was anywhere near the studio listed mm-hmm. in the credits. Um, you go back to the 1930s and 40s, you're lucky if every department head has a credit. <laughs> yeah. When I was actively working on movies in the 70s and 80s, uh, people in, in my position um, were, were never credited on the film. So all, all of the features I worked on from Star Wars on, uh, my name is not on the movie. And that's why all my IMDb credits for that period say uncredited. <laughs> right. In all those cases, I was um, basically a marketing consultant on all those yeah. films in the uh, 70s and 80s. Um, or I would produce 
special features and that kind of thing as part of being a marketing consultant. Mm -hmm. I sometimes be involved with licensing, um, that, that kind of stuff. So it was a broad based area of marketing, but that's, that's what I did. I mean, I was never, you know, the sound guy or the camera guy. And when you say I worked on crew of things that, that really implies I was doing other things beyond the marketing. Yeah, it's kind of funny. They do have a miscellaneous crew, but then you look at the crew and it's all marketing consultant. <laughs> the IMD yeah. page is kind of weird. Yeah, it's just the way they um, IMDB breaks things down. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I figure Return to Oz must have been one of those really interesting marketing jobs because you've got, oh, The Wizard of Oz, it's the sequel. Then, oh my gosh, what is this? <laughs> well, you know, it's a really interesting Return to Oz again is a really interesting film. It's based on two of the Oz novels combined. Mm-hmm. Um and it is a somewhat darker version. It's not a musical. That mm-hmm. that was a decision going in because you know, the original Wizard of Oz or the movie we think of as the original Wizard of Oz, the Judy Garland movie was popular music of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you did popular music of the time in the early 80s, I'm not sure that's a style that would last the 80s. <laughs> I, I think you'd get Lady Hawk. <laughs> well, Lady Hawk was a pretty great movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great movie. But Soundtrack, a <laughs> little different. <Yeah. laughs> but, you know, they... Um, so the decision was made to do it without songs that there wouldn't really be a way to do it and have the songs be, um, you know, uh, evergreen, if you right, will. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a little darker than some people's taste. Um, we talked about that. We discussed it. Um, Walter Murch, who directed the film was, very much wanted to keep it the the darkness as is in the books because he's a big fan of the books and so um we get um the kind of thing with Dorothy in the mental institution where they're about to perform electroshock therapy on her mm-hmm. which i thought might have been too much but that it was appropriate to the period so yeah. um and it was something that Walter felt strongly about. And, you know, uh, as a marketing consultant, you don't get to say you need to take that out. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you can make suggestions and say, I think it would be stronger. Um, but, you know, you ha- you don't have any decision making powers in that regard. Uh, there, there are things I would have had changed on a number of movies I worked on from the marketing <laughs> standpoint. But it, it's direct. Producers to make those decisions, yeah. right? Um, but the film, you know, the film works, and the film what received the same reaction the the Judy Garland Wizard of Oz received when it was released. It was well thought of, but not overwhelmingly popular. The Judy Garland didn't become really popular till it started be to be played on TV in the. Right. I guess in the sixties uh, was when it started being played um, annually on TV around the holidays. So that's when it's popularity grew. So it's sort of like hmm. the dark crystal in that regard. Yeah. Um, 
And even Alice it's... in Wonderland, you know, that's in the 60s when that film actually became more popular. Yeah. Yeah, but that was for a different reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, in any case, a lot of times it's it's the times. It was the picture was ahead of its time, I think. And um, more modern audiences came to came to like it. Return to Oz isn't as popular as The Dark Crystal, but it's still become a much more popular film over time. Oh, yeah. And, you know, both Jeremy and I were kids of the 80s. And so, you know, we grew up with these films that had that darker take, that, uh, uh, you know, feeling of some some menace. It's it's not just uh, a bright, clean, happy, you know, let's go through the forest and we'll get to our destination without problems. Um, You know, we 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 got to experience stuff like this, you know, seeing the darker side of life, uh, having a bit of a thrill, having a bit of darkness there. which ultimately lets you know the world is dark and you know, how do we cope with it and how do we come out of it? How do we mm-hmm. react to it? So, um, you know, even, you know, even, you know, the lighthearted stuff like, uh, Goonies, you still have threats of having arms, uh, and hands destroyed by a blender. You've got, um, mm-hmm. you know, worries about being defeated by and struck down by the Kodan Armada in the last Starfighter, And, yeah. Uh, you know, these these uh, clones coming to Earth and taking another person's place. And but you know what? It was the 80s. That's that's what developed. And that's what uh, that's what made us who we are, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, where our personalities come from, our family, our friends and all of the TV and books, uh, movies, that sort of thing. Yeah, I see. Also, you've got a lot of writing credits. Uh, was that sort of a transition uh, at, from marketing into writing? Or I mean, that's how I figure with marketing, you have to kind of write up a lot of things anyway. So was that did that just feel natural, or did that take a a bit of a change in direction for you? Well, it, I mean, it was a change of direction because it, you're writing um, when you're doing marketing, you're not supposed to be doing fiction, <laughs> right? Fiction maybe, but not fiction. Yeah. You know, it was it was something I just wanted to get into something where I had a more a greater involvement in the in the project. Um, I'm certainly not an actor. I've got no interest in being a director. Um, And uh, writing really came pretty natural to me. Um, I always enjoyed writing and uh, I had. um an opportunity to get into writing um, more creative and more fully involved. And I was always an animation fan and I had an opportunity to uh, write on the first season of the real Ghostbusters. And so I took that and uh, ran with it. I wrote three episodes of the first season of that show and then moved on to a different series called the bionic six where i wrote 10 episodes and i've been working primarily as a a writer and producer in animation since then yeah i mean and lots of stuff dino saucers which is i think underappreciated i remember watching that and liking it when i was a kid the smurfs gi joe mighty max you've got to work on a lot of great old shows yeah i've been very fortunate uh in a lot of places and you've yeah. written a lot of stuff for dc you've written for disney 
and adapted manga, as we mentioned before. Uh, but it says you're also a member of the Writers Guild of America. But uh, so you've got a, like a newer book you've just released recently. Yes, I have a book uh, that just came out the end of the year called Star Wars Memories, which is a book. It's about a uh, hundred and so hundred or thousand words or so about wow. the years worked on um, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, talking about all the people I worked with, Mark and Carrie, Harrison, George, Gary Kurtz, uh, Tony Daniels, all the different projects I was involved with at Lucasfilm, and uh, my time on the set, all that kind of stuff. It's a lot of stories about what happened while we were making those movies and all how we got fandom involved in all of it. Wow. Nice. That sounds pretty good. Just add that to the library of books I really need to read. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there are four interviews in the book that I uh, conducted 40 years ago with uh, George, Harrison, Mark, and Tony Daniels wow. that uh, between Star Wars and Empire, talking to them about the making of the movies. So those are in there as well. Wow. Oh, nice. Well, thanks so much for coming and talking to us today. This has been great. Well, thank you. I, I've enjoyed it. Okay. And, of course, you're welcome back anytime. If you get another book or, I mean, gosh, you got so much stuff you worked. I don't think we got into everything. <laughs> There's so much more we can do. So you well, are welcome, of course, anytime. Anytime you want to talk, give me a call. All right. Thanks. Well, thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Neverland Podcast. We invite you back next week for more fun and adventure. Until then, remember to keep a pixie in your pocket. It's that young at heart, positive attitude that you can share with others. And remember to visit our website at NeverlandPodcast.com. There you can find links to our news page, our shop, our contact page, where you can easily send an email to podcast at NeverlandPodcast.com. You can also find our Neverlanders page, where you can find out how to become an official lost boy or pixie, because girls are too clever to get lost. Become a real Neverlander! Please feel free to leave us a voicemail at 816-226-6492. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at NeverlandPCast. And like our Neverland Podcast fan page on Facebook. We also have a group on Facebook for you to join. We also appreciate your support to keep the Neverland Podcast up and running. Visit Patreon.com slash Neverland Podcast to donate to Keeping the Pixie Dust Alive. Copyright content featured on the Neverland Podcast is copyright of their respective creators and used under fair use license. All original content is copyright of Blue Band Productions and a very special thanks to Yeehaw Bob Jackson at yeehawbob.com for our new ending music. God bless! Yeah! Hello everybody, this is Yeehaw Bob Jackson. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, we love you. Neverland Podcast, it's true. Neverland Podcast, we love you.